science allowed uh, a creative escape. I've always been, you know, I'm, I like to create things. I, I sew a lot, I knit a lot, and I'm a musician. And so I think that if you have the right mentor, they can take your creative outlet and turn that into something that's even on the other side of the, the brain, right? And say, here's the creative piece that can turn into science. That's Dr. Holly Bowser-Heaton. Today, on Behind the Microscope. Hello everyone, and welcome back. I'm Dijan Sadie, and this is Behind the Microscope, a podcast about the people and process behind the scenes of science and medicine. Our guest today is Dr. Holly Bowser-Heaton, an assistant professor and interventional pediatric cardiologist and physician scientist at Sibley Heart Center at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. She's also a co-director of the MD-PhD program at Emory University. She earned her MD and PhD at Indiana University, completed residency in pediatrics at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and fellowship at Lucille Salter Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford. Today she shares her journey to becoming a physician scientist in a procedural field and her thoughts on moving physician scientist training forward as a co-director of an MSTP. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Holly bowser Heath. I come from a family where uh, my dad finished seventh grade. My mom got her um, high school diploma through a tutor um, because she married my dad when she was 16. And so I come from a family who there was really no precedence for going to college. Um, my dad was a welder by trade, very hard worker. Um, so when I decided that I wanted to do medicine, which was very early on, um, and I can't really explain to you why I had this call or this passion to, to be a doctor, um, I, I really didn't have a path right, to follow. So everything was kind of investigating on my own. And as I was going through um, really just grade school and high school, I would contact with physicians, whether it was through my own, you know, kind of personal, like a pediatrician or, you know, had an otolaryngologist because I have some hearing um, disability. Um, You know, that's when I started to, to be a little bit more proactive about going to medicine. So During undergrad, I did a lot of research, and part of that was motivated by uh, grant money that would support uh, my undergrad uh, tuition. And I was accepted into this summer program. Um, Oh, goodness, I can't remember the name of what it was, but it allowed me to stay on campus and do an entire summer of research. During that time period, then I was really focused on trying to do a thesis during my undergrad years and got the research bug, right? then you're like, oh, this is really cool. I can investigate something and get an answer. And at that time, I looked at uh, calcium signaling. um, And I just thought the whole thing was just fascinating. I had a wonderful mentor. um, And going then into medical school and applying, you know, there's that little box. It's like, are you applying to MD or MD PhD? And I was like, man, maybe I'll just apply to the MD-PhD program. This will be really cool. Um, As I learned more about it, number one, there was um, an earlier decision pathway for that program at Indiana University. 
And at the time I had a dad who had multiple myeloma and I wanted to stay home with my parents, to be honest. And uh, when I then went through interviews and just found out more about the MD-PhD program, what it could offer, how I could, could continue to do research, it was clear that that was the path. Um, you know, I got to talk to a couple of people on the interview trail who did research that was like calcium and nitric oxide signaling. And, you know, I just geeked out, I nerded out, you know, and, uh, knew that that's probably where I needed to be. So I kind of, in some ways, um, stumbled upon it, to be honest, but after you, uh, realize that you can investigate and change and create something new all while still being a part of this, you know, decade long, um, establishment of medicine, mm-hmm. pretty exciting that you can do both. Right. That's awesome. I think that's a wonderful story. And it's, um, I think it's probably, there's a lot of commonality with a lot of people that do MD PhD is that you just sort of stumble on it. I want to ask you something about something you said, which, um, I think is interesting that you felt like you didn't really have a path to figuring out how to get from, you know, let's say high school to medical school, something that I, um, I think a lot of people are talking about nationally is how do we get more people in science and medicine? And certainly I think that there's some conclusion has been drawn that we need to target people much earlier than undergrad. What are your, what are your thoughts about how we can start doing that? Because, you know, there is so much human potential that we potentially are missing out by not providing a clear path that like, this is something you can do. This is an MD PhD, or this is an MD, or this is a PhD, maybe when you're in elementary school. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Um, so I grew up in Gary, Indiana, which is a pretty underserved um, area. Um, and I went to public school through elementary school. My parents made the decision to send me to a private school after that because our middle school was um, pretty rough, to be honest. And the matriculation into college was very, very, very low. Um, So I'll I'll say this, that, you know, if I had a little bit more science probably introduced as an elementary student, um, that would have been a little easier to understand. It wasn't until I was in, in middle school where maybe there there was more robust discussion, but even then I certainly didn't meet a physician, let alone a physician scientist throughout any of my training, even at this improved school, albeit I can't say that it was um, the most robust around the country, right? Um, So I, I think a couple of things. Number one, when there's an underserved area and you know that people are very rarely going to encounter someone in science or medicine, um, not just their parents, but I can't tell you one parent that I knew that was in any sort of science or medicine growing up. Now I look at my daughter and my, my other three younger children, my daughter who's older and she has more of an awareness, she's nine. There's, you know, all of her friends' parents are physicians or scientists or engineers or, you know, something, right? So her exposure is very different. Um, I do think that we really need to be able to go into those schools, programs, after school, you know, activities, whatever, to prove to kids that, number one, there are physicians that look like you. (laughs) Um, And number two, and number two, that, you know, you can come out of a, out of an environment um, like Gary, Indiana, 
and um, become a successful physician scientist or a successful scientist, successful physician. Um, I just, I think that for me, it was literally just the exposure of who I was going to for healthcare. It does speak to the power that we have in seeing patients, right? Influencing right. them. Right. It's sort of a, sort of totally separate from what we're doing to, to take care of them, their health, yeah. but actually influencing you know, their perspective of what your what this profession looks like. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Which is why, of course, as we talk all the time, diversity is so important, right? So mm -hmm. someone can see themselves in the people that see them. Um, but I think really for me, I, I was lucky in, in a sense because um, I did have very supportive parents. Maybe they didn't understand the pathway, but they were supportive so that when I talked about it, at least, you know, they weren't saying, oh, you shouldn't go to college or that was never the case. Right. So I think number one, getting into schools, number two, getting into schools and showing that um, the workforce is diverse. And then also talking about what does it look like to even, even be a doctor? What do you have to do to get there? You know, um, I remember asking my otolaryngologist, how do you get into medical school? <laughs> because no one else could tell me. Um, so I think, you know, if we started even, I think grade school is probably the optimal time, really, because people start to create um, mindsets about what they can achieve and what's possible, even, you know, in third, fourth grade, it's yeah. got to start early. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that also gets to like equity too, because, um, you know, like we've had this conversation that I thankfully had parents who helped me pay for college. And I mm -hmm. had all these opportunities to do research during undergrad. And then when I found out that MD PhD was a thing, I could pivot and make mm -hmm. my application for MD PhD programs, but not everybody has that luxury, certainly, you know? And okay. so if we can give people opportunities sooner to start thinking like, these are the steps that you need to do because getting into med school and, and an MD PhD program, that's a whole nother like can of worms. And it's, it, it absolutely takes good advising to, to, to tell people what the steps are, because, you know, if you don't have a uncle, who's a physician to say, Oh, you know, do this, get this many hours shadowing, do this much research, blah, blah, blah. You have no idea. You're just kind of floating. And I well yeah, I think one of the things you just mentioned too, like um, shadow this person or go see this person. If you don't even, if you don't know a physician in your life, mm -hmm. even having the inroads to do some of those things are difficult. And, you know, I think that's where it's our responsibility as, uh, you know, attendings to be frankly honest, is to reach out to some of these individuals who are, you know, in college and say, you know, I can provide you some opportunity because the organic opportunity may not present itself for right. a lot of individuals. Yeah, you know? absolutely. All right. And then, then the other thing that you mentioned was that you got the research bug in undergrad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to talk about that a little bit because I think research has a way of kind of sneaking up on you. And if you get a good mentorship and you get excited about um, a project, or you were saying you were geeking out on calcium signaling. <laughs> um, do you have any insight into how we can, A, make more people excited about science in that way, and B, deal with some of the burnout that we see as people go through their PhD? Because I think a lot of people come in with that gung-ho kind of spirit that, you know, I love calcium signaling. And then by the end, they're like, I hate 
research, you know, or, yeah. or not even hate, but just, it's not that burning passion that it kind of has to be for you to be yeah. able to get up every morning and write a grant or work on a manuscript. Yeah, I think, um, so for me, um, science allowed um, a creative escape. I've always been, you know, I'm, I like to create things. I, I sew a lot. I knit a lot. Um, I'm a musician. I needed something to create, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that if you have the right mentor, they can take your creative outlet and turn that into something that's even on the other side of the, the brain, right? And mm -hmm. say, here's the creative piece that can turn into science. I had a, a mentor who did a few things. Number one, allowed me to investigate some things on my own, even as an undergrad, yeah. you know, here's the path that you want to look at, but Hey, if you want to look at this, you know, marker, you want to look at this one, that's fine. Just tell me what it is that you'd like to do. And how cool mm -hmm. is that as an undergrad, you get to decide how you want to investigate something. Right. Um, I think the other thing is that, you know, having somebody support you and give you product for your work is important. Mm -hmm. So during my undergrad, not only did I do my thesis, which was a requirement for, for graduation with honors, but then he also allowed me to be, you know, an author on the paper that we were writing and, yeah. and to see my name on a paper, again, somebody who... Yeah parents didn't graduate high school in the, the, the same way as everybody else, you know, um, it, it meant a lot. It, mm -hmm. it, it was a, a milestone. So I think number one, that's something that needs to occur. But in terms of the passion, I think that if I were, and I'm just being very honest here, if I were just, um, I shouldn't say just, but if, if I solely had a PhD, mm -hmm. there would be days that I would be burned out for sure. Mm -hmm. I think having being a physician scientist, you have something on the other end that is driving your science constantly. Mm. When I see a patient that we don't have an answer for. Yeah. And you, you know, for me in pediatrics, I go to a family and I say, I don't have an answer or a solution here. Mm -hmm. That's gut wrenching. Right? right. And so when I come back to my office and I'm like rubbing my forehead from the headache that just ensued from this terrible conversation, you can't help but think about how you can fix it so that next time you have a solution, you can walk up to someone and say, this is the answer, right? Mm -hmm. right. So for me, the grant writing is always fueled by that interaction. And I don't know how maybe folks who don't have that interaction find the same passion, but for me, definitely that's where the passion lies. Yeah. So um, I think some of that, you know, is <clears throat> physician involvement in straight science research, mm -hmm. right? And having collaborations with uh, PhDs that are doing things that could potentially have the possibility to be translational because that could really inspire um, other folks to keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I always think that's a interesting aspect of being a physician scientist is that the training, I mean, if you do an MD PhD, the training is so long, but I wonder if there's actually less burnout from, you know, from a passion standpoint there might be burnout mm -hmm. from a busyness standpoint but <laughs> yeah. but but that there's you know everybody talks bench to bedside but i think what you're talking about is that there's a lot of the inspiration is from bedside to bench absolutely um absolutely so, so that's awesome i think that's really cool too you know i mentor uh phd students master students etc and when you come back to the lab and you say um oh my gosh you guys um look at this family had this um, unfortunate 
situation where their baby maybe didn't do very well. And so they're donating some tissue or something. And this is what we can do with this tissue. And this is how we can advance science. The students really then have such meaning, Mm -hmm. you know, and what it is they're studying because they understand where that came from and and the sacrifice and things like that. So, um, you know, I do think it's a duty for MDs who are not involved in science to also reach out and have that partnership because I think it keeps both parties from Mm -hmm. getting burned out from what they do. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, all right. Well, so, so let's talk a little bit about your experience during your MD PhD. How did that go? There's a lot of tenuous transitions, right. That I have are, are seared into my recent memory. So I'm curious (laughs) about your experience. Um, you know, I was very fortunate to have a PI who was and is a fantastic person. And in fact, just this last weekend called me to check in and see how I'm doing, even though he's retired and, you know, is living a wonderful life in Florida with his wife. Right. Um, it's, it's interesting to think about how all of the transitions are influenced by people that have mentored you and getting you through those periods. Because frankly, I think that there's potential to be very, depending on your personality, very depressed, honestly, going in and out of these transition points. You start off medical school, you have a group of friends, um, you've just, you know, come out of an undergrad. I had a great group of, of these girls, we'd study together, we hung out together, and then they kept going and I, I was doing my PhD work. And I remember there was a day I'm in the lab in the basic science lab doing these nitric oxide measurements and they came by the lab and popped their head in and they're like, we're going to lunch. You want to come with us? And I was like in the middle of an experiment, couldn't leave. And they, and I was like, Oh, thanks so much. And they left. And I was like crying because I had missed this like camaraderie. Now I was in a lab where it was just myself and another PhD student who was a fantastic person, but just not the same, um, togetherness, you know? So as you go through your PhD, I felt like for me, even though personally, it was a lovely time in my life where I met my husband, I got married, did all these things as a, you know, professional, I mean, a personal development professionally, it was very lonely and a little isolating without having, um, you know, the PI that I did at the time, I think that it would have been very challenging to continue to feel that passion for your work because you're by yourself a little bit, you know, um, and then coming back out. So I, I kind of did a weird route. I defended during, uh, what would be my third year of medical school. We did two, 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 um, uh, I did two, two, two. That's how I did it. So I did two years of my PhD and then defended during my third year. And, um, that was really challenging because coming back, I didn't know that class of medical students no one, like, like, I didn't know anybody. Right. And I came into this classroom and I'm still kind of in the PhD world because I was finishing up my defense stuff mm-hmm. right at the beginning. It was awkward, right. It was super awkward. So yeah. I had this Everyone's really, like, who are you? Where are you? Yeah. Where'd you come from? Yeah. <laughs> I had this really close relationship with some of the, the faculty because I'd been around campus and they knew me, but yet here I am this like third year medical student by myself. So I think that transition was also very challenging because now you're in a new medical school class with people you don't know who have already formed two years of friendships. Um, You're not in a study group. You're not, you know, all of those things were were challenging. And then, you know, at that point having to deal with um, 
you know, you're a little bit older than everyone else. Your life doesn't stop. So you have other responsibilities, <laughs> you know, you're married or have kids or have something else that maybe your colleagues don't. I think that that's a, a really tough transition. Um, not to mention the idea that you had gone from being a PhD where you made your own schedule. You had flexibility in your uh, time you ate lunch, time you got mm-hmm. up, how long you worked. When you, you know, <laughs> all um, of that is out now, the window. All of it's gone. And now yeah. someone's telling you when to be there, how to be there, what to dress, you know, what to wear, how to act. Um, man, tough transition. And mm-hmm. I, I haven't forgotten that period at all, mm-hmm. even now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is completely bizarre. And I've, I feel like I've talked to, you know, a lot of people that we've talked to, they said, you know, you come back from PhD, you don't remember the stuff like the, the, you know, brand new third years do. And so one of my, one of the people we interviewed, he said, you know, I knew I was the dumbest person in the room and it was day after day, after day, after day, after day. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, um, and I think that community thing that you're talking about, that, that you felt more professionally isolated just by the nature of, of how a PhD training is structured, is that there is not the same kind of cohort and certainly MD PhDs, because you're pulled from this cohort of, you know, 150 to 250 students where you have this big group and you all have the same schedule. And, this, and even when you are on different clerkships, you all kind of have something in common. And mm-hmm. now everybody else is off doing this, you know, kind of, you know, exciting and, and unique stuff. And you're in the lab, which is exciting in its own way, but in a completely different way. And so I want to just ask you a little bit about the importance of community within the MD-PhD Mm-hmm. Um, cohort, community, whatever, as people go through training. Because I know for me personally, the only people who truly understood what it was like to feel, I kind of know what I'm doing. I took step one. No, I know nothing. I'm in the you know first year <laughs> PhD. And then you like feel like finally got some grasp on this material and you've got your own project. And then you're back in M3 where you, again, know nothing. Um, yeah, the, 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 the sad thing is, that feeling never goes away as a physician scientist, right? So as you straddle two worlds, um, you know, you always feel like I'm not doing enough clinically. I'm not doing enough in the lab. Um, PhDs kind of look at you and think like, "Mm, they didn't even do a postdoc, man, or they did a short postdoc, or they don't understand this. They don't understand. It's um, even now, I would say that community is important. Uh, the MD-PhD community, though, as you're, as you're going through training, um, there are so many unique things that, that, that the cohort of people understand. Um, when is it time to get married? When is it time to have a child? When is it time to have a second child? When is it time to, to as my dad used to say, apply for Social Security when you're still a student, you know, because right. you've been in school for so right. long. <laughs> you know, you, you become off cycle from your colleagues. And even, you know, as I look at when I graduated, you know, residency or, or fellowship, you're off cycle, right? You're, you're always a little off. Um, so I think having people who understand that struggle um, doesn't, it really doesn't change um, or the need doesn't change as you get further along in the career. And so having that 
even if you all are at different institutions, it's so important, you know, to at least feel like you have someone to reach out to and say, hey, I'm struggling with X, Y, and Z as an assistant or associate professor. Have you seen this? You know, um, it's really helpful. So I, I, I think for those of us who, and that's the vast majority of us who need the community to kind of help us stay, you know, motivated, but also not feel discouraged during times where funding is terrible. And, you know, you have all these things you have to deal with uh, is, is, is paramount to continuing to do this. Because frankly, as a physician scientist, it's always super easy just to become a clinician. And you need other people to kind of help you say, no, 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 keep going. You know, this is, this is important. The good fight is worth it, <laughs> you know? So I would say, yes, it's important for y'all now, um, but even more so this, the people that you guys are, are arm in arm with at this moment will be important to you in 15 years too. Yeah, that's awesome. So, and that kind of touches on my next question um, because I totally, I totally felt that going through training, my cohort was was so important and we still get together pretty much all of us um, when COVID's not exploding to, <laughs> to kind of commiserate because we've, we've been through all these steps and no one, no one really knows what it's been like for the last eight years, but these 12 people, which is kind of crazy. Um, but you know, you're involved in the MD PhD leadership here at Emory. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about um, what role, so obviously I think it's very important for students to be engaged with other students, but what role slash ways do you think that the MD-PhD program, and I'm not saying necessarily Emory, I'm saying kind of across the board, um, how can we formalize some of this community building uh, within the MD-PhD community so that people don't feel completely isolated at, at various points, you know, because I think, yeah, I think some of it, some of it is on the students to be sure to, to, to make those relationships. But I think we can also um, kind of seed those relationships too. And I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, you know, one thing to bring out is that uh, people respond differently, right? People respond differently to stress. And some people, even if you are, uh, outgoing and you have been able to um, apply for competitive programs. When, when you are in a place where maybe it's uh, difficult, you may become very introverted, inwardly focused, maybe very hard to reach out to a community that's not right in front of you. I think, you know, one thing that we've talked about from a leadership perspective is the reach out to students and making certain that everybody's talked to one-on-one. -on -one. Because I think when you do that, you start to hear some um, some minor things, you might also hear major things, you know, as people are kind of struggling, and it may not have to do with the program or the science, it may have to do with, you know, gosh, I got a new dog, I can't even get home to like, let the dog out, you know what I mean? I mean, it's some of these, like, they seem simple, but in reality, it's, it's a really big deal for quality of life. Um, so I think there is a responsibility for all of us to reach out to one another, for sure. Things like, um, these, these phone calls, you know, CRC, we've talked about having these family meetings, family dinners, you know, gatherings, people have to be checked in on, um, because I think it's very easy to become isolated. But I think um, even more than that, I think the MD-PhD program and cohort has 
almost, um, I'm going to say a responsibility, but, but, you know, using that term a little bit differently to show other people around you what the medical community can be, right? As physician scientists, there's this component of like investigation, making the world better in a very altruistic way, because there's not like fame and fortune in science, right? It's, it's something about, um, I want to help mankind get better. And looking at this community and having a group of people who all share that mindset at the base um, can be inspirational to other people too. And so I think the MD-PhD program, MD-PhD physician scientists, however you want to say it, have a unique responsibility for advocacy for, you know, not just for patients, but also just for science in general. You know, I think about um, you know, advocacy for NIH funding, all of these things that need to happen, we have a, a really loud voice. And so having a community that bands together, not just during, you know, this period of training, but a community at large is heck of important for, for all of science. And, and that may sound very uh, hyperbolic, but I think it's really true. You have this is a unique group of folks who really need to straddle both sides and move things forward. Yeah, well, and I think it's particularly kind of um, uh, articulate right now to to think about because there is a big distrust of science and mm -hmm. scientific institutions um, and and physicians also. You know, I mean, I mm -hmm. think it's pervasive. Um, and certainly physician scientists have been some of those people that have stepped in and tried to, to communicate um, with you know, the general public about what's mm -hmm. going on as we navigate this pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we recently interviewed Michael Minna, who mm -hmm. is, um, he has you know, like 150,000 Twitter followers or something. And he's a MD, PhD, graduate of Emory. And something he said was that, um, that people, exactly what you're saying, that, that people who are in MD, PhD programs or, or training to become physician scientists, however they do that, are training to some extent to become leaders. Mm -hmm. And that people who are effective leaders are effective communicators. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, we train how to be a good clinician, and I think you train how to be a good scientist, but there are some of these skills like being a good communicator that we don't necessarily have formalized education for. And are there things that we should do to teach that? Are there things that, that is it even possible yeah. to teach that? Um, I, I do think, um, you know, there are some unique programs um, that I know of even through our university and multiple other universities have them as well. You know, when you start to get into early career grants, K awards, you know, uh, K-12s, KLs, all those kind of things, there are um, leadership opportunities and career development opportunities that we can all take part of. And I think as physician scientists, those are paramount to career development because as things talk about communication, emotional intelligence, how you can give feedback to a larger group of individuals. Some of that's leadership training, but really some of it's really communication-based. Um, getting into some of those grants, it's not that you, that's the only way you can do it, but getting into some of those grants allows you immense opportunity at a stage where you're really blossoming as a physician scientist to get involved. And, 
you know, even though we may not have that during our training at this moment, um, and we, you know, as you know, we're starting to incorporate some of those things with, with DEI, um, exposure, stuff like that. Um, we really need to continue to foster that as someone gets further along in their career, because that's when someone's going to say to you as assistant professor, hey, I need you to come and speak to this group of people as an associate professor. Hey, you're going to be part of a leadership team and you need to facilitate communi communication between scientists and physicians or, you know, as, as a division head or something, you're now on media, right? Uh, communicating with the general public. I think that kind of stuff, though, we can't skip over because unfortunately in medical training, those are things that we lack, right? Um, you go through uh, marketing, uh, some sort of business development. That's all they talk about, right? I mean, maybe not all they talk about. My husband as a JD MBA would tell me there's probably more than that. But uh, they talk about communication and, and style and, you know, all these things. Um, I think we have to learn it on almost a kind of the back end, if you will, in unique ways. But there are definitely opportunities out there. And, um, you know, I would encourage anybody who is a physician scientist to look into those opportunities and take the time, you know, take the hours that it takes to number one, understand who you are, how you communicate, how you react to stress. Because, you know, uh, when you are somebody again, you know, facing public to even talk about your findings as a, an investigator, or you're trying to talk about the current, um, you know, ongoings health-wise as in, you know, right now with COVID, you need to understand how to deal with uh, maybe some, some, you know, hard questions that you really have to answer in a calm, collected format. So understanding who you are and understanding how to be able to express that to other people is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, no matter how important your findings are or how incredible of a clinician you are, if you can't communicate, then you know, no one will ever know about your findings and your patients won't trust you either because they don't understand what you're doing. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I totally agree. So, so, so we've gotten through your, um, with, you know, some obvious tangents to, uh, the MD PhD training. What was it like then, you know, you decided then to go do pediatrics residency and then fellowship, correct? Um, and uh, you did those obviously at different places. What was your what was your thinking kind of when you got to the end of the kind of structured MD PhD program, and now kind of had to enter this next phase of probably intensely clinical training? Yeah. How did you how did you make sure or keep your eye on becoming a physician scientist at the other end? Oh man. Okay. So um, as a resident, I specifically chose Cincinnati because there is mm -hmm. this. Number one, they're great, great children's hospital. But number two, uh, there was this robust uh, research, research infrastructure. Um, the irony of residency is that I was so um, involved clinically that I did very little research, ironically. Um, I always had intended to do more, um, but at the time, um, you know, I had a child, I had a baby during residency. And I had to focus. I had to focus on my clinical duties and in raising a small infant. Um, you know, I was involved in some clinical stuff, but nothing really significant. And I don't, I don't regret that, to be honest, because I don't think that changed um, my science curiosity by any means. It was still there. 
Um, it just, it, it wasn't really fostered at that time, but the, the environment was such that I couldn't forget about it, right? The environment during residency was evidence-based, look at this data, look at this research building right here next to campus where all these really great things are happening. You know, I did my cardiology rotation. I always knew I wanted to do interventional cardiology. I went into pediatrics knowing that. Um, and so, you know, sitting there in, in cardiology and hearing, oh, you know, they're doing X, Y, and Z research and cardiomyopathy right next door. It kept that kind of uh, curiosity. Um, when I applied for a fellowship, really um, knowing that I wanted to do a technical specialty, um, I chose the best mentor for interventional cardiology that I thought I could find. And for me, that was a specific person at Stanford, his name's Stan Perry. And I, I went to that fellowship program knowing I wanted to work with him. <laughs> I don't know if that's the best way to go about choosing your fellowship, but it definitely worked out for me because during that time period that I was able to work with that person who again, was also very uh, minded in innovation and uh, science and, and really uh, encouraged that, you know, these things be explored. So during fellowship, I did do some basic science, um, not as much as I probably could have if I took time off, but that's not really something I wanted to do. I wanted to finish my interventional time and be a really, really, really good interventionalist, right? Um, so that at the end of the day, no one could say, uh, oh, she's a physician scientist, but I would never want to go to her, <laughs> right? Like that you want, you, especially as a proceduralist, you want to be really on top of your game. So I think my, my path may have been a little different if I didn't do something that was technically based, but the technical aspects did make research have to take a little bit of a pause for a while. Other people have done very different paths. You know, I know of a, a electrophysiologist who also obviously is very technical, who did a true, you know, integrated program through fellowship. You know, there are certainly ways in which you can do that. I chose not to. I chose to then look for a job where I was uh, very honest about my intent to go back to do some, re some research. Now, I will say that um, for folks who are navigating this, this transition from fellowship to attending them, you know, if you're not already uh, coming in with an award of some degree, you have to realize that you're coming in as a clinician, right? With the idea that you can prove yourself in a different way. So for myself, you know, I did things like collaborated first, you know, had some things that I was kind of getting into. And then I said, can I have one day a week of protected time? Yes, you can. Great. Okay. Now I can do more. Then you can apply for awards. You, you, it's little by little that you can kind of um, gain the protected time that you have, especially if you're in something that's procedurally based, because honestly, people need to hire you for the procedure, not necessarily for you just to fill in the gaps. So the, the pathway might need to be a little unique for each person. Uh, for me, though, uh, you know, I'll be honest, getting back into science was not that hard in the sense that like, you know, my passion was there. It had always been there. And I knew what I wanted to kind of focus on and do. And you, your skill set that you've gotten during, you know, PhD and various times doing research doesn't go away. Like you still remember that you still know how to investigate and all those things. So um, you know, it, maybe some people might say, oh, 
you know, if, if people did, re did research all through residency and fellowship, it'd be so much easier. I think it also sometimes can distract from becoming a superb clinician. And I think as ND PhDs, I always am going to tell people become a superb clinician mm -hmm. because that only is going to fire your, your research more and more and more. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So, so build those skills that like allow you to be engaged with patients more frequently and see the clinical problems that are sort of intractable at this moment. And mm -hmm. then you can carry all of that back with you to the lab. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I want to talk a little bit about why you picked a procedural specialty and um, kind of, cause you've mentioned some of the challenges of doing, you know, of, of doing research with in, if you're a proceduralist, you know, so um, I, I'd be interested to hear. Yeah. I think, I think it comes back to this whole idea of um, I'm happiest doing things with my hands. Um, it's always been that way for me as long as I can remember. So you know, I love cardiology and, and it's probably much easier for me to be a general cardiologist and do research than be an interventionalist. But um, being an interventionist also affords me a different perspective uh, because, you know, I get to deal in real time with vascular issues and hemodynamics and all these things that are right in front of my face. Um, it is challenging because you have to, you know, there's not a point in which you can do 90, 10, 90 research, 10% clinical, or even 80, 20 becomes challenging because your technical skills have to, to be up to snuff, right? And in a procedural specialty as well, I think there's always a, a little bit of pressure to have national presence in that environment. Um, and so that also takes time away from some of the basic science research, right? Because you have to still do things in this national arena um, to, to get to know, to be honest, you know, the newest devices, uh, be involved in device trials and things like that. Um, I, I wouldn't have it any other way though, because for, for people like myself and, and Bob Gross, you know, I think not being able to do the procedures would, would just uh, stifle who I am as a clinician. Um, I would rather, to be honest, have uh, longer hours and be able to try to balance the two. You do have to do things that are unique. Um, you know, I have a very close partnership with a PhD who, when I'm scrubbed and I can't answer the phone and there's an emergency, he answers the phone, right? So you do have to do some things that are a little bit different. Um, but I think, you know, for people who are procedurally minded, I had been told so many times, you cannot do this and do research. My message to people who are listening is you can, you have to be creative and you have to work hard, but it can happen. It can mm -hmm. definitely happen. Yeah. I think that's awesome. And I, I, I always, I hate, I, I, I don't like that. There's this, um, mentality that certain specialties cannot have physician scientists. I think all specialties need physician scientists. Absolutely. Um, and so, uh, you know, but on the other hand, there, like you said, there's challenges and it's difficult from a time perspective. Are there things that we can do, you know, that program leadership can do or hospital administration can do to make sure you know, that people who are procedurally minded and that that's what drives them clinically can still be protected and, and you know, get procedural time, but also still have time to do, um, 
to do basic science, which is super time intensive. Do, do yeah. you think that, do you think that, you know, that's a critical aspect to make sure that we have physician scientists in general surgery and in hospital medicine and in gastroenterology and interventional cardiology and, you know, other fields procedural or not that don't necessarily attract a lot of physician scientists. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's things that we can do there? We absolutely can. And, and, you know, some things that I am dealing with even right now is when you look at uh, a clinician's responsibilities, some things um, a clinician has to do, right? You absolutely have to. And some things can be delegated in a different way. So for example, um, I'm, I'm a co-director for a pulmonary artery reconstruction program, right? So you have these complex pulmonary artery patients. What I've had to do is I've had to sit down and say, what are my responsibilities as a director for this program and who can I delegate things to, right? So, you know, having support from your institution for a nurse to help out with some of the patient phone calls or have a nurse practitioner help with, um, you know, H&Ps or or procedure notes or things that can kind of alleviate some of the ancillary um, pieces of a procedure are paramount because even that 15 minutes that it might take for me to do X, Y, or Z, I can now be on, on the phone with my PhD student dealing through some, you know, technical issues for an experiment, to be honest. And so having the support for things that are not 100%, they have to be done by you being able to write that down and say, you know, uh, you can go to administration and say, I'm an interventional cardiologist. Here are my responsibilities. Here are the things that are part of my job that I do not have to do. Can you give me the support to get through these things so I can then be a good physician scientist? That's absolutely necessary. You know, I think some specialties have already gotten that in place to some degree, right? When I, I'm very jealous of my fellow hemonkers and nephrologists and people who have like had years of this wonderful physician science uh, history because they have figured that out. There's, there's um, ancillary things that help support those individuals. We need to get that for all specialties. Yeah, I totally agree. I, and I think, I mean, you know, um, clinic or, you know, translational medicine is not just important for hematology, oncology, and nephrology, right? right? right. So, so it, unless we figure out some way in, from an institutional standpoint, I think, and from training standpoint to make sure that we can attract and retain and maintain physician scientists, I think it's going to be slower going from an innovation standpoint for mm-hmm. medicine. And I think then we, we as physician scientists have the responsibility to use those resources wisely, right? If you're asking for a, a nurse to help out with some clinical aspect that you're working with, you, you need to use that person wisely and not just say, I want a full-time nurse, but you only need that person 0.3 FTE, right? You got to be creative and you have to, you know, not over ask for things that you might strain the system because what that does is that prevents the next person behind you from having resources they need to. There needs to be a resource sharing um, awareness that needs to occur, right? So, and again, this is something we're not taught. This is something that that I've learned, (laughs) you know, going through training that we probably should be more vocal about, you know, how do you try to negotiate your time? But I don't mean 80-20. I mean, how do you negotiate your time to be used wisely? Because the percentage split honestly doesn't exist, right? 
you're, you're a physician hundred percent of the time. You're also a researcher hundred percent of the time. Right. It's not like on Tuesdays, people will never call you. <laughs> right. It's not like you just shut it off. You're right. like, okay, I'm done. I'm turning off my clinical phone. You know, I'm not going to answer any patients patient phone calls. Right. Exactly. And I think that's, I've never really thought about the fact that, you know, managing what, what you absolutely have to do is a way to ensure that your time's protected. And that's a very, mm-hmm. that's, that's a skill set that I think, you know, you probably have to develop because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I waste so much time doing things even now that, either don't need to be done or could be done by somebody else. And I, I'm not, you know, I'm just a student, but sometimes I find myself buried in the weeds and I could just mm-hmm. be like, no, I don't need to do this. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So, all right. And then, so kind of just transition to the last bit. So you're involved in the MD PhD leadership. I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, I think medical education and the way that we're training um, physician scientists writ large, but also, you know, from MD, PhD to resident, to fellow, to, to junior faculty and beyond is, is evolving. And that support is changing as we realize that how many leaks there are in the pipeline and make efforts nationally to plug some of those. Mm-hmm. I just want to get your perspective and your um, ideas about what is changing, what should change, what you think you see coming down the pipeline um, for a physician scientist specifically? Yeah, you know, certainly, um, as, as you know, here, we're really focusing on maintaining physician scientists throughout residency, right? And it, there's been a big push um, for us to really engage not only with residency interviews, but also residency program as it evolves, that people continue to, to be involved in research through basic science research. I think those efforts are fantastic. But Really, um, that's that's one step to all of this, right? As we go even from the MD-PhD program with you all talking about how you apply for residencies and what it is you're looking for in a residency program, that should be discussed. You know, you're applying and you're saying, I want to continue basic science research. What does that really look like for me? What kind of support do I have? Because if, if there is ever push back at any point, again, it's so easy to fall back on a clinician background and just become a clinician. I think in addition to from from residency going forward, you then have so many splits, right? There's so many subspecialties that can happen after residency. And so it's hard to reach all of those. But I think really what we need to do nationally is to be reaching out to to fellowship directors, honestly, and to say what kind of, and you know, all fellowships have research requirements, right? But what does that really mean? Does that mean that everybody is doing um, outcomes-based research, which has its place and is wonderful to do, but what kind of support are you giving to people who need more time to do research that's not just outcomes-based or, you know, uh, retrospective in nature? You know, are you giving people time to do six, seven, eight months of, of, of research that they might even want to take time and get, you know, if you're not a PhD, get a PhD. If you're not, you know, have any basic science background, you get a master's, you know, what kind of support do we have for that? I think that's many levels. That's um, helping individuals apply for grants. We've got to have additional support, particularly for research uh, grant writing for residents and fellows. It's really lacking. Um, And I think having internal grants that support 
the period to get pilot data to apply for those grants is paramount. So it's not just um, supporting people and saying, you can do it. It's giving them the resources to get there to be funded. And, and not, not all things are about funding, but certainly funding allows you, again, to negotiate the time to get the work done. Um, if I could see, I think that's definitely something that's going to be changing in the pipeline. And I already see some of that movement. I see some pilot grants coming out for people, particularly here in pediatrics. Um, I also see that, you know, there's a lot of support for early career faculty who have come out of fellowship who are trying to make exactly that transition I talked about work, right? If it were not for the K-12 award here for me, that would have been difficult. Um, so having those types of, you know, funded efforts that you can uh, get onto that support your time to, to really dedicate is paramount. So I think it needs to happen, to be honest, at every single level and every stage. And the conversation needs to continue. And for those people who are not interested in science, which is a, a lot, right? We have a lot of clinicians who are interested in maybe clinical research, but for, you know, not basic science in particular. We've got to reach out and say, how can we broaden your, your perspective, so to speak, to get this retention to happen? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm the, you know, studies have, have kind of looked at this, how many physician scientists do we need? How many are we training? Mm -hmm. And, um, my sense is that, that a, a lot of physician scientists are retiring, mm -hmm. um, and we are not training MD PhDs fast enough to, uh, or, or retaining them fast enough to maintain that workforce. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've become kind of interested in this idea that there are a lot of MD students that are MD only, um, that even I am training with now who have a real interest in doing basic science. And I think figuring out some on-ramp for them after, after medical school, that it's not a requirement to have an MD PhD to be mm -hmm. a physician scientist, because historically that has not been the case, you right. know? Right. Um, I think, I think, um, you know, again, we as physician scientists who are already on this track have a responsibility to reach out to those folks and try to help them. You know, I think the majority of people don't even know what the process would be to submit a grant. Right. And so even helping individuals with that, I think in addition, one thing that we have not yet talked about, which is the big elephant in the room. When you are a clinician 100% of the time, your potential earnings are significantly more than someone who does research. Right now, we are in an era where research is not valued monetarily. It may be valued to be um, in some sort of leadership position, right? I think the vast majorities of divisions are moving towards individuals who have this sort of background. However, um, I think lifetime earnings, you definitely have a much lower amount. Um, so that, that's very uh, unfortunate, right? That you end up losing individuals perhaps who might have the financial incentive to become a clinician. There are some programs that are helpful that, that are relatively new. For example, loan forgiveness programs, if you're doing research in underserved um, areas, um, you know, I know, for example, pediatrics has one of them, HIV AIDS research has another funding mechanism. But again, that, that's only helpful for individuals who have uh, loans that need to be paid um, 
or, you know, individuals who, for example, feel that that's the burden that they carry. That doesn't necessarily account for someone who is, um, take me out of the picture because I'm a pediatric interventionist and, and our monetary, uh, monetary compensation is not the same as someone else, but let's say you're adult interventional cardiologist. It makes no sense to not take STEMI call and do research than to be in the cath lab um, taking care of patients. So we've got to figure out a way nationally to support, and I'm not saying everyone, but a select group of people who are successful and motivated in this physician science realm to, to be compensated for that. And I do think that's where we're seeing a shift. Previously, a lot of individuals did research and also did clinical work, right? And I think many people are compensated along the same lines because several individuals in a department might be doing that. Now it's one or two, and there's a big discrepancy that may occur. So um, I think we have to push forward and think about what's our, what's the value in science as a community and as a um, nation, to be honest, um, Mm -hmm. versus an RVU and um, insurance reimbursement. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for taking time to do this and for everything you do for the um, Emory MD-PhD program. Of course. We love appreciate it. it. All right, everyone. That's our episode for this week. Our thanks to Dr. Bowser Heaton for coming on the show. Be sure to check out her faculty page in the show notes and follow her on Twitter at HBH underscore MDPhD. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share us with others you think would appreciate this content. And if you have time, leave us a review on iTunes. And for more from the team here at Behind the Microscope, head to our website at www.behindthemicroscope.com. Behind the Microscope is executive produced by Joe Banke, Carrie Jansen, Michael Sayeg, and me. Our faculty advisors are Dr. Mary Horton and Dr. Brian Robinson. And I'm Bijan Sadie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.